Well, if you are new to Campus House this summer, we're doing a series called Backstory, and I'll explain that in just a moment. Uh, Leah and I have been gone for the last couple of weeks. Uh, we, in, in June, we encourage our staff to take vacations, and so, um, so we encouraged ourselves to take a vacation. And we went out west, and um, we did uh, a lot of hiking around some national parks. And so I want to show you just a clip that really sets up what we're talking about today. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that uh, was said a lot <laughs> for the three days that we were in Zion and Bryce in the Grand Canyon. And I, can a show of hands, anybody been to Zion, Bryce, Grand Canyon? Am amazing. Do we have a favorite? Zion, anyone? Favorite? Okay, that's my favorite. Um, Zion's on the left, Bryce Canyon's on the right, and uh, Grand Canyon is there. And obviously breathtaking pictures don't do it justice you hear that all the time but it's true it just it loses something in translation the hiking that we did you know we're not big hikers we did i think we did 28 miles and we had the had the fitbit and so we took pictures every 10,000 steps and and uh but in zion especially we, we walked on this, this trail called uh, Angel's Landing. And I don't know if you've been on that trail, but uh, it's, it's an awesome trail, and it goes 5,000 feet up. And, but when you get to the top, it's, it's precarious. I mean, there's, uh, um, there are chains. And if you don't hang on to the chain, then it's like a 1,000-foot drop to the right or to the left of you. Um, and I, I love hiking, and I don't usually get vertigo, but that, that was testing the limits of, of my gut, you know? Uh, just the fact that there is, there is very little space between me and death. And to, uh, to make it even more precarious, uh, on the rocks there is basically sand. And so you are slipping uh, all the time that you're walking. But that's what you get when you get to the top. It, it's, it's totally worth it. The whole time I'm on, I'm on alert, you know, I'm just grateful that uh, there are people with little kids up there, you know. And so I'm, like, not just thinking about, my own safety and well-being and Leah, but, but all of these kids, I feel like I'm trying to shepherd them as well. It's like, hang on to the chain. The psalm for today is Psalm 73. And there's a verse in verse 2 that really goes off of this idea of slipping. It's a confession. And the psalmist says, but as for me, my feet almost slipped. And not a thousand foot drop for him, it was even worse. The, the realization that his feet almost slipped was a slipping away from warmth and intimacy with God. 
that he had taken his eyes off of God and onto the world around him. And so that is what we want to talk about today. It is spiritual vertigo. He got disoriented when his eyes were off of God and instead fixed on the world around him. So our series that we're doing this summer is called Backstory, where we want to take a look at psalms, various psalms, and then what is the backstory? What's, what's the, the, the narrative uh, with, within which that psalm is written? And the psalms are found in the center of your Bible. And so if you, if you want to look at Psalm 73, we have Bibles at the end of your row. I'll have it on the screen as well. But in the very center of the psalms is Psalm 73. 150 psalms. So this is the, this is the center point, uh, literally, but also theologically. The psalms are not chronological per se, but they are a movement. And the movement is the movement from obedience to lament to praise. And they're broken up, the psalms, 150 psalms are broken up into five books. And so Psalm 73 is the start of book three. And book three is largely a lament. Walter Brueggemann is, uh, was a theologian and writer. He describes the Psalms this way. It's a movement from orientation to disorientation to reorientation. Orientation are Psalms that declare God's goodness and his character and certainty about who he is. They're Psalms of praise and worship. The disorientation psalms are psalms of confusion and question and doubt and lament. And they're about a third of the psalms are these kind of psalms, which I think is so rich that God <laughs> included these laments in the word because we can relate to them. And then psalms of reorientation are coming out of those times and those places of doubt and confusion not back to where the psalmist was and not back to where we were, but as an impetus to go further in trusting God and in leaning into him in worship. So the cool thing about Psalm 73, I love this psalm, is that all three of those, orientation, disorientation, and reorientation, are wrapped up into one psalm. This is a microcosm of all of the psalms. And the backstory of this particular psalm, is, it's not a story from the life of David when he was on the run from Saul or when he, um, Psalm 51 a few weeks ago, when he had committed adultery. It's not that kind of a psalm backstory. This backstory is the psalm was written by a worship leader. His name is Asaph. And Asaph was appointed by David as like the, the artist in residence the worship leader in Jerusalem. And this is a particular time in, in Asaph's life, which is he, he is uh, really perplexed by the fact that everyone else around him seems to have it really good, except the people of God who are going through hardship. And he's questioning this, this life of following after God, of of obedience to his commands and to his word, 
of swimming upstream in the midst of a culture that has no regard for God, that actually mocks God. And seemingly their lives are going really well. While the people of God who are devoted to God, who are trying to follow his word and commands, their lives are in the midst of hardship. And so this is poetry of a man who is trying to sync up his theology, what he knows of God and his, his character, with his day-to-day experience. So I, I think we can relate, right? So this morning we're going to walk through this orientation and disorientation and reorientation process together. We're going to have some times of worship and some times of prayer and reflection um, as we look at this text in Psalm 73. And I, I really invite us to bring our own questions and our own doubts to the table, our own laments as we ponder God's goodness and his faithfulness, as we refix our eyes on him. So let me pray, and then we'll start. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit who teaches us and guides us and counsels us and comforts us. Thank you for your truth that is always true. And thank you for your grace that is sufficient. And we pray that all of those things, all those elements come together in this space this morning. We want to encounter you. We want to offer our praises to you and our worship to you because you alone are worthy of our worship. We also want to be honest with our own doubts and with our own proneness to slipping, to wandering, to to taking our eyes off of you, Jesus. And so refix our hearts and our minds on you today and we just want to be an open book and we thank you that you are an open book to us that you invite us to come close so we come close in jesus name amen amen i want to take just the first verse and then we'll sing a couple of songs off of that the first verse is this orientation verse The psalmist Asaph says, Surely God is good to Israel. To those, I should work this clicker. Backstory. There. Surely God is good to Israel. To those who are pure in heart. This is a creed. This is a a, a statement of belief, of faith. It's not just Asaph's own personal faith, he is saying this on behalf of the people of God. Surely God is good to Israel. But the whole method of operation for the Israelites was based upon the promise that God's blessing was tied to their obedience. And the reverse is true, that those who reject God, the wicked forfeit his blessing. So if you go back to Psalm 1, this is what the first psalm says. This is, the, this is what sets the foundation for that kind of theology. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way of the sinners or, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person's like a tree 
planted by streams of water which yield its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. God is good to the people who walk in his ways, the pure in heart, those who are fully committed to God. So Asaph starts with what is true. What is true about God and what is true about those who walk in his ways. This is reality that God is worthy of our praise. He is worthy of our devotion. This is true north. This is the impetus for our worship. So let that lead us into our own praise and our own worship this morning. Uh, I want to acknowledge that, that our orientation to truth is that you are the name above every other name. That there is no one like you. So with the psalmist, we want to proclaim that today, that that is what is truth, that that is the true north, that that is the really real, that that is our reality. To establish that, God, that is our foundation this morning. To establish that, not just as a a, a cognitive exercise, not just as a token of theology, but as the reality of our hearts and our minds and our beings. Take a minute just to let the reality of God's character and goodness and faithfulness and truth and grace and love permeate past the surface and past the head knowledge into your heart. For Asaph, he believed it, and yet what he was experiencing was very, very different. He said, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But then he said, as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. Surely God is good to Israel. The word surely uh, is kind of a Hebrew onomatopoeia. The word in Hebrew is ach. I just want us to say that together today. Ach. Come on, humor me. Ach. Yes. If you remember nothing from this sermon, you will remember ach. Because it is this, it's this word that reflects this wrestling. Ach. It is longing to be convinced. You might want to wipe off the person's 
head in front of you after that word. It's, it, the songwriter is wrestling with the goodness of God in light of his and his people's struggle. For me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. He knows God's goodness in his head, but not necessarily in his heart. He knows it cognitive, cognitively, but not necessarily experientially, at least not in this moment. He wants to trust, but it seems rather elusive in the midst of comparing the hardships of God's people to the apparent ease and prosperity and wealth of the wicked and the apathetic and those who actually mock God around them. And then he goes into detail about what's driving this confusion and doubt. He says, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possessions, possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like, always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. Surely in vain, ach, same word. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been afflicted and every morning brings new punishment. They have no struggles. They are healthy and strong. Another translation says fat and happy. They're arrogant in their godlessness. They are blatant in their pride. They practice violence and oppression of others, stepping on whoever to get ahead. They have selfish attitudes and evil imaginations. They scoff at God and are popular for it. They have rejected God as being irrelevant. They have an easy, wealthy life. They exploit the weak and the poor, and they get richer in the process. Ah, surely in vain I have kept my heart pure. I've tried so hard. For what? This is injustice. He is comparing himself to the world around him, and he is filled with confusion and doubt and just frustration. He has experienced hardship. He's been plagued by burdens while his godless neighbors have the good life. His perception, listen to this, is stuck in this carousel. Over and over, he is seeing the same thing. That those who are wicked are getting ahead and those who are devoted to God are struggling. And that is messing big time with his theology. God had not made good seemingly on his end of the bargain. He believes that God is good, but he is experiencing suffering. So the question for us is that, what happens when the reality that we are experiencing in real time looks different from the really real, from the true north that we just sang about, when life doesn't match up to our theological expectations. He says, I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And the word prosperity in, in the Hebrew is shalom. 
shalom, like this holistic peace, this holistic blessing. But shalom is always reserved for God's people. That's, that's like a, that's an Israel word. Only the righteous can have shalom, security and prosperity. And for Asaph, there's this disorientation that comes when that paradigm has been reversed, when God's people are suffering and those who reject God are seemingly flourishing. This is a contradiction in his heart. And so this is a confession of disorientation, of warped perspective, of distorted perception. He says, I almost blew it. I almost blew it when I, when I saw how well it was going for them and how hard it was for me. And I've, I've put all of this time and all of this effort into following God for nothing, right? What's it for? What am I getting out of this? And we've been there. We've sung this song, haven't we? Does God see me? Why hasn't he come through in the way that I expected him to come through? Why be devoted to God when it's, it appears that the arrogant God rejectors are healthy, wealthy, and comfortable? Why go after integrity when cheaters rarely get caught? Is it really worth it? I've had lots of conversations through the years with students and with just friends who are in this space. And I myself have been in this space I had one conversation that went something like this. He said, I don't get it. I'm doing all the right things. I'm praying. I'm not looking at porn. I'm going to church. And yet God doesn't seem to be coming through. I've prayed and prayed asking for a relationship. And my prayers just seem to bounce off the ceiling. I have friends who aren't Christians who are getting everything handed to them. I'm having a hard time trusting God's goodness. Conversation with another student who said, I think everyone I know is cheating <laughs> in some form or fashion in this class. And yet, God's calling me to integrity. But that integrity is going to cost me my grade. This song, this lament is part of this, this song that's been sung by God followers all the way through scripture and all the way through history. In Jeremiah 12, he, Jeremiah says, you are always righteous, Lord, when I bring a case before you, yet I got to speak to you about your justice. I, I just have to here. Um, why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do the faithless live at ease? Job 21, why do the wicked live on, growing old and increasing in power? Psalm 94, how long, Lord, will the wicked, how long will the wicked be jubilant? And we too are filled with doubts and questions and comparison and envy and frustration that God is not coming through in the timely way that we thought we can slip. So Asaph comes to God not just with the orientation verse of you are worthy, but the lament of, I almost slipped.
and the lament coming to grips with what he is actually feeling and holding that out to God, that is part of the reorientation process for him and for us. Dan Allender writes, Lament cuts through insincerity. It strips pretense and it reveals the raw nerve of trust that angrily approaches the throne of grace and then kneels in awed, robust wonder. Lament is an openness to God. It's a movement toward God. It's not just a complaint in waving a fist or a middle finger at him. It's not simply despair. It's not preemptive vows. It's not disillusioned contempt, but honest bearing of the soul. It's honest words and prayers that leave the door open for God to move in our hearts. Laments take us deeper beyond just that emotion to a place of truly going after God's heart. A lament doesn't suppress the need for truth, but it also doesn't isolate truth as simply a demand to know the why. Because a lament, as part of worship, is going after the who. It's laying aside, why is this happening to me? And picking up the who. This relational God who is holding out his hand to us. It's getting to the end of ourselves. It's, it's not just a rant. It is an humble desire to know the heart of God. Lament is language that is raw and honest and unbridled, but with words whose ink has not yet dried. Jeremiah wrote this in Lamentations 3. This is what I shall keep in mind and so regain some hope. Surely Yahweh's mercies are not over. His deeds of faithful love are not exhausted. Every morning they are renewed. Great is his faithfulness. Yahweh is all I have, I say to myself, and so I will put my hope in him. It is good to wait in silence for Yahweh to save. So I want to give you just a couple minutes just to think about your own laments, your own experiences, your own frustrations and questions and doubts. And the, the context of this psalm is confession. And so this is a time of confession for us. What are some ways that, that you and I have been tempted or enticed to question God's goodness in light of our own circumstances, especially when compared to the situations of others? When we have been trying so hard to go after and be devoted to God, and yet this thing that we wanted so badly hasn't come through. What are some times when we've almost slipped? There is an expectation that we can have with the Lord, but when that slips into entitlement, then that gives us an opportunity to confess to Him. So just spend a couple of minutes, and there is some paper at the end of your row if you want to ask someone to pass down a piece of paper. There's a pen under your seat if you want to write a bit. We're just going to take three or four minutes just to make this personal. What is our place of disorientation today?
the time of reorientation. He said, if I had spoken like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all of this, it troubled me deeply until I entered the sanctuary of God. And then I understood their final destiny. Surely you placed them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. But my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered. I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. And yet I am always with you. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will take me into your glory. Whom, who, whom have I in heaven but you, and earth has nothing I desire besides you? My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it's good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. Where did Asaph go to realign what was true and good about God with his ways, in his ways? He went to the sanctuary. The sanctuary is a place of worship. The tension of faith and experience troubled Asaph until he entered the sanctuary. It was a turning point, not for his circumstances, but about it was a turning point for his perspective about those circumstances. You see, worship doesn't give us tidy answers, but it does reorient us to what is true. The sanctuary was a place of confession. He said, my heart was embittered. I was senseless and arrogant. But as for me, my feet almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. Dan Allender writes, Our desires are rarely satisfied in a way that relieves the ache of incompleteness. Tim Keller writes, Live for beauty, but beauty fades. Live for money, but money fades. Live for success, but success fades. If you don't have God, you really don't have anything because everything is just slipping away from you. Therefore, it may be shaky to believe in God, but it's more slippery not to. Emily Dickinson wrote a poem called The World is Not Conclusion. And there's a, there's a line I love. It says, faith slips and laughs and rallies. Faith slips and laughs and rallies. And so the psalmist says, I confess my skewed perception, and yet I'm always with you. This relationship. He says, I hold on to you. You hold on to me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. Afterward, you will take me into glory. Those who are far from God will perish. But as for me, it's good to be near God. So the sanctuary is a place of confession, but it is also a place that, that expands our nearsighted perspective. The, the present injustice or hardship expands to this bigger picture of God's eternal promises in justice. Nicole Eunice uh, wrote that comparing ourselves to what we see uh, 
in others via Instagram or, in, you know, in the news feed or just our neighbors. It's like looking at a parade through a people. It's a limited view. The consequences of actions or inactions are veiled. Asaph goes to the sanctuary, and in meeting God, he gets a bigger perspective of the world around him. That the perceived flourishing of the wicked, it's temporary. And the promised restoration of the righteous is eternal. So what seems so secure in his mind was actually shaky. And what is so, seems so shaky is, in terms of his faith is actually secure. His thinking gets reoriented, but so does his heart. Tony Reinke wrote, The psalmist struggles with an arrhythmia of the heart, not merely an under misunderstanding of the mind. Envy and doubt are signs of heart failure. There's a realignment with the desires and the passions of God. We used to sing this song when I was growing up, Turn your eyes to Je- upon Jesus and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. We had to fly in and out of Las Vegas, which was quite a contrast to Zion, Bryce, and Grand Canyon. There's a street called the Fremont Experience in Las Vegas. And it's like four blocks that has a canopy of 21 million LED lights. And even during the middle of the day, it is all lit up. It's a, it's a canopy for a big, humongous party. And it's sad. It's really, really, really sad. It's this monument to the, uh, the abilities of light technicians. 21 million LED lights. Seems impressive until we stayed at a yurt, which is a tent out in the middle of the desert, and this is what was out there. It's more than 21 million. (laughs) I didn't count them, but I've heard. The contrast is really clear when we go to the sanctuary. Paul said all of this is rubbish compared to knowing Christ. All our accolades, all of our accomplishments, it's all rubbish, it's garbage compared to knowing Christ. The psalmist says, whom have I but you, God? Nothing, no one compares. God is the strength of my heart. He is my portion forever. Peter wrote, when the great shepherd appears, you will receive a crown of never-ending glory and honor. So the sanctuary is a place of confession and perspective, but it's also a place of sacrifice. It's a visual demonstration of God's mercy and atonement. Part of his lament was that he had sacrificed everything to be devoted to God. There was something real about that. But the payoff didn't seem to be happening. (laughs) C.S. Lewis wrote this, and this is quoted a lot. 
It says the New Testament has lots to say about self-denial, but not about self-denial as an end in itself. We are told to deny ourselves and to take up our crosses in order that we may follow Christ. And nearly every description of what we shall ultimately find if we do contains an appeal to desire. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. The confession of the psalmist and the confession of our hearts is that our apparent self-denial of things around us doesn't have the, the latitude and the expanse of what is actually promised to us. Here's a quick verse from um, 2 Corinthians. Paul says, we're not giving up. How could we, even though on the outside it looks like things are falling apart on us, on the inside, where God is making new life, not a day goes by without his unfolding grace. These hard times are small potatoes compared to the coming good times, the lavish celebration prepared for us. There's far more here than meets the eye. The things we see now are here today and gone tomorrow, but the things we can't see will last forever. Sanctuary is a place of sacrifice, acknowledging that we are all in with God. But it's also a place where we realize that the reason that we would want to be all in with God is because he's all in with us. I, I love, actually, Kwesi, can you put that... Um, the smoke back on the screen. I didn't know Ralph was going to have this on the screen today, but this is an awesome visual. <laughs> he says, all of this didn't make sense until I went into the sanctuary. And getting to the sanctuary meant that he passed the altar. Day in and day out. There were sacrifices being made on behalf of the sin of the people of Israel. And then you get to the book of Hebrews, and you read this. Every priest goes to work at the altar each day, offers the same old sacrifices year in, year out, never makes a dent in the sin problem. As a priest... Christ made a single sacrifice for sins, and that was it. And then he sat down right beside God and waited for his enemies to cave in. It was a perfect sacrifice by a perfect person to perfect some imperfect people. 
By that single offering, he did everything that was needed to be done for everyone who takes part in the purifying process. Once sins are taken care of for good, there's no longer any need to offer sacrifices for them. As Asaph is considering his own self-sacrifice for going after God and that not working out the way that he thought it should work out. He passes by the altar, which is a, a preview of the once and for all sacrifice that Jesus made. Giving everything, laying down his life so that we can have true life. Not the artificial 21 LED kind of life, but the real life that only comes through his grace. You see, Asaph had a problem with the fact that those taking shortcuts seemed to be, it seemed to be working out for them quite well. The message of the gospel is that Jesus didn't take a shortcut. That he went to the cross, all the way to the cross, in order to give us life. And the real cool message is that that wasn't the end of the story, <laughs> that he rose from the grave and that in his life we have true life, that that is our compass, that that is our true north, that that is our really real, that that is our new reality. Paul says Christ is your life, not success, not the getting ahead, not the relationship, it is Christ. And when we come to him in the sanctuary, in his presence, then we come to the realization that we are truly satisfied with him. Truly satisfied with him. There is a realignment, a reorientation to what is truly true. Each week we take communion together. I wanted to read that passage about the sacrifice in the temple because that pointed to the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross. And so we celebrate that as we take communion. We're going to pass out the bread. We're going to pass out the cup. It represents the body and the blood of Jesus. And if you are a follower of Jesus, we invite you to take part in this. This is a weekly reminder of the fact that our satisfaction in that our life truly is in Christ. Because he truly gave his life for us. So let me pray and we'll take communion together and sing one more song together. God, thank you for this psalm. Thank you for the, the reorientation that we can have to what is true. So God, we come to you with our songs of praise and we come to you with our laments and our confusion but we come to you to receive the truth that you are faithful to save and to rescue and that you alone are the one who can define what is good so we lay down our perceptions and our perspective of what we think should be good or the timeline that we think should be right. And we just submit ourselves to your Lordship today because you paid for us. 
Thank you for your sacrifice that frees us. Oh, sweet grace, how great.